So good morning to everyone. It's nice to see new faces, familiar faces. Uh, lovely to see you all. Oops, there we go. So we're currently in the middle of a series. We've been about nine to ten weeks into this, looking at the book of Galatians. We've been studying this, like I say, for about eight to ten weeks and picking apart Paul's heart behind this book. So for those who haven't been with us, I'm just going to do a quick recap. Galatians was written by Paul. And if you ever want to see an example of somebody meeting Jesus and having their life transformed, their life turned around, I'd encourage you to read Acts 9. He went from killing Christians to throwing them into prison, and that being his passion, to convincing people to become Christians and spreading the gospel. Acts 9. He went on to become one of the greatest church planters, spreading the gospel anywhere he could. And what he would do is he would go into a city, he would preach the gospel, often cause a bit of a stir, and then move on to a next town and establish a church there. And then what he would do is he would often write to the churches to support, to encourage, to guide them in their theology, to provide support to them. And the letter of Galatians is one of those letters. It's one of those letters where he's writing to the church in Galatia, which covers modern Turkey. So we're going to look today at Galatians 3, verses 23 to 4, verse 7. So Galatians 3, 23 to 4, verse 7. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Amen. For as many of you, were, for as, many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he, is, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his father into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen? So before we go any further, it's really important that we just understand Paul's heart behind these letters. We get an insight into how Paul feels from these letters towards the church. We see, as I said before, he would praise the church, answer tricky questions that they were wrestling with, guidance, and discipline them where needed. Whatever he was doing, though, we need to realise that he did it because of his passion and love for the gospel, his passion and love for truth, his passion and love for the church. He wanted churches to be established that clung to the true salvation. He wanted churches to be established that clung to the true faith in Jesus Christ. 
And here in Galatians, we have this. Paul, in effect, is doing this. When we read Galatians 1, verse 6, which I'd preached on previously, he was astonished at how quickly the church had fallen away from the gospel, of the true gospel. So why did this happen? Well, just as a quick recap, we read that false teachers had infiltrated the church, specifically Judaizers, who were religious teachers. They were teaching a false gospel, a false hope, that the only way to be saved is through following the law. The only way we could achieve salvation is to follow the rules and the law. So what law is this? What law are we talking about? This is the law given to the Israelites, the law given unto Moses to direct the Israelites. When we think of this, we often think of just the Ten Commandments, which were part of the law. However, we also see there were other laws too. For example, the book of Leviticus is basically a law filled with laws and rules on how they should live. It gave them details about how to deal with lepers, how to cleanse lepers, where to sacrifice, how to sacrifice, acceptable offerings, how to treat the Sabbath, the Passover. The list went on and on and on. But this law was given to the Jews for a number of reasons. The people of Israel were set aside as God's chosen people. However, we see from the very first incidents of people being on earth, that it is in man's nature to sin. Man's nature is to rebel. Whether this be Adam or Eve eating the fruit that they were asked not to, or Cain murdering his brother Abel, Genesis 6.5 gives us a really good insight into this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Galatians 3.19 provides a useful insight that the law was added because of our sin because of our transgressions. Therefore, the law was a necessity. It was needed. It helped to keep the Jews from falling away. It helped to set them apart and provide them up with guidance on how they should live their lives, covering the minute detail. And the Judaizers were religious leaders who followed this, they dedicated their lives from a young age to follow this, to know the scriptures off by heart, to know every last detail. But they missed the point. They missed the point of this, laws. Verse 23 gives us a clue about this, which reads, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And here's the great misconception. The Judaizers who promoted this idea of the need to follow the law to be saved didn't truly understand what the purpose of this law was. They didn't understand it, why it was there. It was there to reveal sin. For example, if we now just take the Ten Commandments, the fundamental laws given to the Jewish people, these ten well-known sentences, I wonder how many of these they could have said that they actually had kept their whole life. You shall have no other God but me. Don't worship any other idols. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Keep the Sabbath holy. Respect your mother and father. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false evidence against your neighbour. Don't cover or want after your neighbour's belongings. For the majority of the Jews, for the majority of us, it's probably a tick list of ones that we've broken rather than we've kept at some point. When we think further into Leviticus and all the rules and regulations that they had, 
I wonder how many they can keep all the time. It's almost impossible. It would have been impossible. But that's the purpose. The law shows the sinner his guilt and that we need a saviour, that we can't do it on our own. Paul reminds us in Romans 7.12 that the law was holy, the commandment holy and righteous and good. The law didn't make us sinners. Rather, it revealed to us that we already were sinners. It wasn't designed to save us, but to guide us to Jesus. Let's read on. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came. Paul hadn't chosen these words by accident. When we look at how Paul writes his letters, he would very carefully pick the word in. And here we have an illustration that would have been familiar to his audience in Galatia. In many Roman and Greek households, well-educated slaves took the children to and from school. They would teach them, protect them, prohibit them, and even discipline them. And this is what Paul meant when he used that word guardian in verse 24. Often we would think of that as being a teacher or a, a child worker. But this isn't what Paul meant by our, our modern idea of what a teacher is. The literal translation of this Greek word is pedagogue. For those who work with children, this is quite a key word that seems to be coming back around at the moment. And it literally means a child conductor, a guide. The law was therefore given to lovingly direct and conduct the Jews in their immaturity until the coming faith. An impossible task, some might say. As I said, I'm always amazed by this. Whenever I read about the religious leaders, the Judaizers, the scribes, they'd spent their whole life reading scripture. They'd spent their whole life studying, mentoring, and yet they missed the mark of this so badly. It wasn't there to achieve salvation. It was to guide them to Jesus. And there's some points here that we can pick out that we need to take note of as the mistakes that they made. Firstly, they approached Scripture with their own agenda. We see evidence of this, the Judaizers, throughout the Bible. If you could turn your Bibles to Luke 18 for me, Luke 18, 9 to 14. We're just going to read. This is a really good example, a parable. So it's Luke 18, 9 to 14. It up. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a religious leader, Judaizer, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a day. I give tithes for all that I get. A common theme, whenever you look at how the Pharisees would talk, whenever we look at how the Judaizers, the scribes would talk, there was a common pattern. And there's a word for this, this word of I, constantly that they would refer to, this nitpicky, is called narcissus, which is quite a fancy theological term, Basically, what it means is that man reads himself into the Bible and takes God out. I'm just going to read that again. If you just pick that up again. Luke 18, just again. I should have kept that, shouldn't I? Come back. 
I thank you that I twice am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get, reading themselves in. They believed that their own knowledge of the scriptures was key. If they felt a law had been outgrown or needed to be changed to suit their own desires, they gave it a new and more acceptable meaning. And there's a real warning here. It's so easy for us to fall into this trap that the Judaizers did. To spend time studying the scripture, reading it, or then manipulating it for our own purposes, for our own personal gain. How might this look? We might be really eager to read the part of the Bible that tells us to look after the poor and needy in Matthew 19, but then overlook or ignore where it tells us not to get drunk, for example. We like that, so we'll keep that bit. We might be happy to apply biblical teaching that tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, but then overlook that a true love for the Lord means that, for example, we abstain from sex before marriage in 1 Corinthians 6. We might be quick to respect our parents, but then ignore the fact that it reminds us to, um, to not criticise or to gossip. My little boy drew me a picture. He loves drawing pictures. I'll give 10 points to anybody who can work out what it is. Rocket, brilliant. Yes, spaceship, rocket. Okay. He loves drawing rockets. He's crazy. He loves seeing the beluga, anything like that. He's just mad for it. He's absolutely mad for it. Now, if I take this picture and show you, you can work out what it is. However, if I take out the best bits, I like that booster. That's a really good booster. I'll keep that. I'm just going to put that. Keith, could you just come to the front and hold that for me? All right, thank you. <laughs> I don't normally do this, just to clarify. I don't normally rip up my child's pictures. I like the rocket hub. <laughs> just hold that for me. I like the hub as well. I'm not too keen on that bit. The fire's all right, but it's not great. Um, I like that bit there. If I look at that now, I haven't got a full picture. That isn't the picture that was intentionally started. Thanks, Keith. That isn't the picture that was originally intended to be conveyed to people. And if we're not careful how we approach the scripture, we too can become like the Judaizers, taking the Bible, taking bits and pieces and painting a picture that looks nothing like what it was intended to be. We make it about us rather than making it about Jesus. We take bits that we want that suit our needs, but actually a true love of Jesus means that we have to. Lord, I just give it to you. I'm going to have to take up my cross. So how can we avoid this? Really simple tips to help. Number one, be accountable. Be accountable to somebody. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that bad company ruins good morals. I was just thinking as I was preparing, we've got our community groups. Are we spending time with people? Are we spending time with people who encourage us? Proverbs 13 reminds us to walk with the wise and we will become wise. Are we spending time with people who encourage us to be more godly? Are we spending time with people who encourage us to be more godly? Who encourage us to love Jesus? Hebrews 10, stir one another up to love good works. Are we spending time with people who do that for us? Are we spending time with people who point us to Jesus? When we see with the Judaizers and the religious leaders, they would go in a gavel together. Were they spending time with people who would encourage them to be more like Jesus, who would challenge them? Number two, pray. 
John 16 reminds us when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide us into truth. If we're not sure, pray. Spend time with people who are godly, who encourage you. Spend time with people that bounce ideas off. Pray, ask Jesus, Lord, is this right? What does your scripture tell me? Where does this sit with me? Where does this sit with what your word says, the full picture of what your word says? And finally, be prepared for the scriptures to challenge you. It's one thing to say that we love reading the Bible, but it's another thing that that means that we have to change sometimes as well. And that's key. When we realize that Jesus paid that ultimate sacrifice, when we realize that Jesus gave his life for us, that we could be reconciled with God, we realize that it was costly. It cost his life. If we truly love Jesus, we don't just cherry pick the best bits. It requires a change from us. It requires us to give ourselves to make sacrifices. Do you know, Lord, I'm really struggling with that, but I'm going to try and give that up. How can we avoid having our own agenda with Scripture? Be accountable, pray, and be prepared to be challenged. The second thing I pointed out when I was reading this extract was that the second place where the Judaizers missed their mark was their hearts. We see from Jesus' time right through the New Testament that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Judaizers' heart was critical. It was critical. They would travel miles to criticize Jesus. They were waiting on his very words to criticize. And this is so important, particularly for Britain, I've got to say. I've got a very, very good friend from school who had a, a really good friend in America who came to visit us a couple of years ago. And we spent some time with him. And uh, one of the things that he was really shocked by is how we talk in Britain. Now, if you've ever been to America, they're probably the total other extreme. Me and Han went to a baseball game, and it was just, I've never seen anything like it. Somebody misses a hit, and they're all high-fiving and shouting and whooping, bonkers. Um, whereas over here, they pointed out that we're very critical, and we're probably quick to acknowledge that, I feel. We're quick to pull things down. We're quick to point out faults. <coughs> From what I can gather from the reading I've done, the Judaizers probably started with a really good heart, their commitment, their passion for the scripture. However, over time we see that their hearts had been hardened and this had led them to criticizing Jesus, anybody who didn't agree with their rules and regulations. And this is a really sneaky tool that the enemy uses here. Timothy Keller um, writes that one of the best ways to hinder man from his walk with God is to distract him with other things. C.S. Lewis, in his Screwtape Letters, I just love this book, states that all extremes are to be encouraged in order for distraction. It's so easy to become distracted in our lives by other things. If we aren't careful, we can fall into exactly the same pit that the Judaizers did. And I'm particularly, if I'm honest, concerned about the way that the church is talked about. And not from non-Christians, actually, from Christians. It seems to be more and more acceptable that we criticize all the time. People with a passion for the church identify errors that are going on, things that they don't feel is right, and then they slowly spend more and more time focusing on these errors than actually on Jesus. Soon they think they're loving Jesus and building up his church, yet the very words coming out of their mouth are actually destroying and breaking down the church that they profess to build. I've been recently reading a book that I got from Devoted about Exodus. Um, And when you think about the story of Exodus, it's just amazing, really. The people were oppressed. They were in slavery. They were treated really badly. 
They saw plagues happen in order that they might come out of Egypt. They were then chased by an army. The sea was parted, pretty big thing, crossed over. They were saved, which pointed to Jesus. And yet, after that had happened, it wasn't long before one or two grumbles started. It wasn't long before one or two complaints happened, which spread. There's no coincidence that in James 3.6, the tongue is referred to as a fire because it spreads whether we like it or not. What we say has an impact. We need to be careful that we're not being distracted. It's very easy to fall into a Judaizer heart where we start focusing on Jesus and then slowly become distracted by other things and start criticising everything that's going on. Now, we'll hear what I'm not saying. Churches should be held accountable too, right? Churches should strive to be more godly. Are there issues? You bet. <laughs> Of course there are. However, if all we can do is find the negatives all the time, the chances are you're probably part of that problem as well. Us sitting, complaining and moaning isn't going to fix this. Jesus will fix it. If we have our eyes on God, things will get fixed. So my question there is, how are we talking about one another? How are we talking about the church? 1 Thessalonians 5 encourages us to build one another up. Do we have a critical heart like the Judaizers that oppresses people inadvertently? Or are we building each other up? Are we quick to encourage? Are we quick to praise? Are we quick to build one another up? See, these points are the things that led the Judaizers to distort the biblical truth of teaching. They let their own agenda, criticisms and egos get in the very way of the thing that they were following. The law was needed to show our sin because the law pointed to one who could free us from it, Jesus. When we go back to verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer longer, sorry, under a guardian, the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. And this reference to children. As we read on, we see that with Jesus coming, Paul in effect is saying that it was time for believers to grow up and mature, no longer needing the guardian, that's the law, to direct them. He refers to putting on Christ. Paul's reference here is key in verse 27. His reference to putting on Christ is key, as this would have had a deeper meaning for his target audience. See, children, when they came of age, would take off their childhood garments and put on the toga, if they were from a Roman citizen's background particularly. And this was a sign, an outward sign, that they were no longer a child of God, but a son of God. They would have been aware of that. Paul chose these words carefully because actually he was referring to previous prophecies. Isaiah 64, verse 6. Take off the garments of sin and receive the righteousness of Christ. Also in 1 Colossians as well, 3. I'm just going to go back to verse 27 to 29. For as many of you uh, for uh, as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You see, the law was there to create a distinction. It set aside the Jews from other people. Important here, because in Galatian society, slaves were kept. Women were confined and Gentiles were sneered at by the Jews. However, 
when Jesus came, this changed everything. The distinctions that were once put in place by the law were gone, whether male, female, Jew, Greek, Gentile, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We become heirs to the promises. The law couldn't make us heirs. God made the promises to Abraham's seed, and that seed is Christ. When we put on Christ, we become heirs of these promises. When we put on Christ, we become heirs of these promises. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born unto the law, to redeem, amen, those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his father into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We no longer sit under the condemnation of the law. The law shows us that we can't save ourselves. It points to Jesus. We can't follow enough moral codes. We can't follow enough rules to save ourselves. It's never going to happen. We can try and be a good person. We can try and do the right thing, but you're never going to do enough to save yourself. It's through Christ that we are justified. Through Christ we are made sons and daughters, heirs to the promise. It's through Christ we are made righteous. We're therefore adopted, and that analogy is beautiful. When you sign a paperwork for an adoption, it's official. God signs that for us. No matter what we've done in the past, no matter if we thought we could save ourselves in the past, no matter if we have a critical heart, no matter if we think that we're good enough or we're a good enough person or we try and fit the Bible to our agenda, God is faithful. He knew we could never achieve our own salvation. He knew we could never do it on our own and he knew we'd make mistakes along the way. But God is righteous. God is just. and Most importantly, God is faithful. I'd just like to take a moment, if you would, uh, just to stand, please, if that's okay. Father, as we go back to our verse, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you are no longer a slave, bound by the law, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Lord God, as we pick apart the scriptures, as we read the book of Galatians, as we work further and further into it, Lord, we see this idea that it's not works that saves us, but grace, Lord God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you brought the Lord to point to Jesus, that we can't do it on our own. Lord, we pray for the times when we've had a critical heart. Lord God, we pray and we repent for the times when we've been so distracted by what others are doing that we've lost our focus on you. We thank you, Father, that there is forgiveness in you. Lord God, if we have a hardened heart, Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would soften it, Lord God. Lord God, we pray for the times when we've cherry-picked 
like that picture, the bits of the Bible that we like, the bits of the Bible that we want to meet our needs. And we say we're sorry. We're sorry, Lord. Make us, help us to strive to become more holy, to follow your heart, what your word says, even when it's tough, even when it requires us to change, not the Bible to change. And Lord God, for those of us who've always thought that we could do it on our own by being a good person, for those of us who've never prayed to you before, for those of us who've thought, oh, do you know what? As long as I'm a good person, I'll be all right. The Bible reminds us that the only way to the Father is through you. And we're sorry, Lord God. But we thank you, Lord God, as we change our focus, that we are heirs to the promise, that we are sons and daughters of you, Father God. Lord God, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's not about what we did, but about what you did on that cross, Father God.